Welcome back to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Every week, I say I'm so excited to introduce the next guest, (laughs) because I am always so damn excited to introduce the next guest, because I get to bring relational ninja Jedis to you to be able to teach us on our journeys, you know, to improve how we show up in relationship and how we just show up as a human being. So... Man, I have so much gratitude for the opportunity to do this, and I also am grateful that I get to come see you. If you're in California, I'm going to San Diego on May 2nd, May 4th in LA, May 6th in San Francisco. You can still get some tickets. They are easily bought. All you do is go to createthelovesd.eventbrite.com for San Diego, and all you do is replace the SD with an LA or an SF for your city. So create the love SD, LA, or SF.eventbrite.com. And because you are special, because you listen to my podcast, you should be treated in a special way, right? I totally agree with you, and that's why I did. So as a listener of the podcast, you do get early bird pricing. So all you have to do is put in the discount code Mark Rove's podcast and bam, you get it. Okay, that's done. I can't wait to see you in California. If you're not from there, hopefully I'll find my way to you sometime. If not, find yourself to me in California. What an excuse to go there. All right, this week's guest, Dr. Julie Schwartz Gottman. Okay, when if you have had any interest in relationships in any way before you came to my podcast or my Instagram at Create the Love, then you've heard the name Gottman. I mean, the Gottmans, Dr. Julie Schwartz Gottman and her husband, John Gottman, are relation. I mean, they have created most of, if not, <laughs> you know, a, a large sum of the research. That goes into what makes great relationships great, what is sort of the red flags of what ends relationships. You know, all these different things that they have created so much research on. They are such contributors to the knowledge base of how we can show up better and what delineates good relationships from not so good ones or or more stressful ones. And what are the effects on our bodies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this week, Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman and I get into the subject of trauma and also infidelity, and it is such a great podcast. I mean, she has so much wisdom. Uh, her and John also just released a book that is called Eight Dates, which is about eight essential dates every couple needs to have, and it is awesome. I mean, I can't recommend it enough, so make sure you pick that up because as in relationship, we often avoid all the hard conversations or we don't know how to navigate them. And this book does both. It provides you with ways and how to navigate it and what you should talk about in order to actually create really beautiful, connected relationships. So without further ado, my next guest, Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gaman. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I, I mean, I. This is one of those moments that you sort of dream of. That well, maybe not everybody dreams of this, but this is a moment that anyone who nerds out on relationships really dreams of. <laughs> I have the honor and the privilege of having Dr. Julie Schwartz Gottman on my podcast today. Hello. Hello there. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mark. Thank you. 
Julie, I have, you know, the people listening, those of you listening know that I sort of had a rock bottom of relational ending um, at 27 and my journey and my purpose has been understanding relationships. And of course, if you want to understand how relationships work, you inevitably always end up to someone with the last name Gottman. It's either John or, or yourself <laughs> or both of you, right? <laughs> That's neat. Thank you. So yeah, this moment has been 13 years in the making. I'm not a fast manifester, but it happened finally. Um, (laughs) In the basis of your work, because your work starts far before John. um, So if you want to walk people through sort of like how you came about your work, because I know you really specialize in trauma, in uh, in couples dealing with affairs. Mm -hmm. So just how did you get about that, you know, come about that type of work? Well, um, so I began my work way back there in about 1973. Um, after graduating from college, moving to Boston, I ended up working with heroin addicts in the wow. combat zone, which was the poor ghetto at the time, uh, and also working with people who were coming back from Vietnam. Um, so people who were really, really seriously distressed, really struggling, and uh, was there for two or three years uh, working with those folks, as well as working with people who were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Then came back to Oregon, and uh, which was my home. I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. Yay, Oregon. Beautiful place. It is so gorgeous. Uh, And um, in Portland, I ended up working in a psych hospital, which was part of a medical school, working on the locked ward. And a lot of those people were really suffering terrible trauma. Uh, So I was there for about two to three years and then went to India, lived in India for a year, worked with people who were the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. Uh, went to graduate school, and in graduate school after that, to get my PhD, I really wanted to focus on trauma and PTSD, uh, as well as very serious depression, you know, all the things that stem from trauma, the ways that people try to suppress the trauma they've been through to numb themselves. That includes addiction, it includes, you know, just going still almost dead through depression and so on. And as I work more and more with trauma, uh, especially working with uh, women who had been physically abused, sexually abused, you know, it certainly became clear that relationship naturally was all part of that, whatever relationships were involved in the traumas. Um, And the work was incredibly um, fulfilling and gratifying because people were in the deepest amount of pain and were emerging like a phoenix from the ashes from that pain to totally recreate a new life and to witness that and to learn about hope and resilience and the power of the human soul to be reborn was was just incredible i mean what a privilege to work with those people so i continued that work all the way through grad school and then worked uh on skid row in los angeles with combat vets who were also still traumatized from vietnam 
and finally moved to Seattle, which is part of my home now. And uh, about six months later, met John. Five months after we met, he proposed. And it's kind of a funny proposal story because he said, honey, what do you think about the idea of marriage? (laughs) Well, by then I knew that he was a marriage researcher and it was like, uh, well, it's a cool thing to study, right? You know, I mean, I didn't know what he was looking for. So uh, he finally did say, uh, no, I mean, you, me, marriage. And I said, oh. <laughs> then I thought about it for about 45 seconds and had another bite of my Chinese food and said, okay. <laughs> and so it was great. So then we got married. So I, I continued, um, we're into the mid eighties now. Um, I continued with, uh, doing my own individual practice and group practice with women who've been incested. And again, still really focusing a lot on trauma, but every night at dinner, we were talking about relationships He was a professor at the University of Washington. He was doing research about the time I started my clinical work before we met. He already had begun this fantastic pioneering research on what predicts whether couples stay together or divorce. And I couldn't help myself. It was so fascinating Uh, that we'd be talking about the research, we'd be talking about how clinical things, you know, fit into that. But, you know, at that point, he and his colleague, Bob Levinson, Robert Levinson, a professor still at UC Berkeley, um, were kind of enjoying watching people's either success or demise. They weren't really interested in, you know, how to fix it, um, how to change it, but they were coming up with incredible results, just phenomenal results like that, you know, predicting with 90 over 90% accuracy, what would happen six years down the road Um, and uh, the factors they identified were super important and proved to be so study after study. Mm -hmm. So after nine years, John and I were sitting in a canoe um, As we do, yeah. I mean, it's like a cool thing to do, and that's where all the great discoveries happen. (laughs) And um, I said, you know, why don't we take this stuff, especially what the successful couples are doing, and create interventions that can help couples uh, become successful themselves when they're struggling. So we began to work on that together and created first a theory Um, because that's what you do when you're both scientists, and we both were, and then um, tried out these interventions and exercises. We tested them to see if they really worked, and lo and behold, they did, Mm -hmm. um, with as much as three-year follow-up, and we were off and running. Um, Created the Gottman Institute together, began giving workshops that gave couples the opportunity to learn these different ways of being together, talking to one another, conflicting with one another in a more calm and constructive manner, and really creating shared meaning as well as deeper friendship and passion and romance. Um, 
and continue doing our research with interventions now, Mm -hmm. um, not only for couples who were just about to have their first child, but also um, for couples who were in poverty, um, uh, couples who were struggling with domestic violence and, you know, so on. And we're still doing that research today. And we've taught over, gosh, I don't know, probably 50,000 couples at this point, uh, the skills that are all part of creating a good relationship. And we've taught, oh God, maybe 100,000 clinicians all over the world at this point. And we're getting really old, Mark. (laughs) We're all working. We can't stop ourselves. It's too fun. Because you love it so much. We do indeed. I would, you know, um, there's so many parts of that that I want to ask about. But first and foremost, I guess, I wonder, like, what was one of the correlations? Because you talked about watching these people who'd been through trauma mm-hmm. and maybe like explain to people what trauma might look like or, or how that might be defined. Um, mm-hmm. But then what was common when you saw these people rising from the ashes like a phoenix? Because that research, I imagine, was so paramount as a baseline for you then moving into watching couples rise from the you know like the ashes so i'm wondering if you could like first define trauma and then what was common about those like what you learned there and then your interventions that later led to couples because i've read so many research on i mean i've read lots of research but the one on couples who have a baby and how you can help shape them in a way that they they become connect more connected and have a more you know so i don't want to like spoil so please yeah please share (laughs) <laughs> okay. I get really so, excited. Yeah, got it. So first of all, uh, let's define what trauma is. Um, so what trauma is, is when, or what causes trauma in uh, individuals is when something that you couldn't predict happens unpredictably. It happens out of nowhere. You couldn't have anticipated it. You didn't know it was going to come. Mm-hmm. And it shocks the heck out of you. It also creates a huge amount of pain, turmoil, loss, distress, uh, anguish, fear, tremendous amount of fear, sometimes anger. Um, But bottom line, it creates a different memory track, which is interesting, in the brain. Now, this is not my research. We didn't do, I didn't do research on trauma. I was treating trauma kind of on the ground, on the front lines. Mm -hmm. But here's what we know about trauma now. Trauma creates a memory track in the brain in which things really differ from ordinary memory. With ordinary memory, you might remember, okay, maybe a a picture of what happened last week or maybe some words somebody said, um, maybe some smells that are poignant for you. Um, But what happens with trauma is that during the actual trauma itself, you are emitting adrenaline and cortisol into the bloodstream. That's one of our body's big reactions that that leads to fight or flight. That's a survival mechanism. Um, 
right? So fighting or fleeing is, or sometimes freezing, is a way to cope with danger. Mm -hmm. Trauma usually presents some form of danger, whether it's a a loss of life, a loss of limb, uh, a loss of your reality as you knew it the second before the trauma hit. Mm-hmm. So, um, in treating trauma, what I saw is that when people told their stories and were understood by the therapist, deeply understood, where they really felt witnessed, mm-hmm. um, the trauma memory became less intense. Let me let me back up a moment and talk about trauma memory. With trauma memory, you not only remember the picture, you remember every single sensory thing that happened during that trauma, plus every single emotional thing that happened, plus your own body's physiological response to the trauma. So what that looks like, let's say is let me give an example let's say that uh you step on an ied and maybe it doesn't blow your body apart but it came close to doing so so what you're going to remember are uh the terrible sound that deafened you the sight of the smoke all around you where you couldn't see anything and you lost your directions. You weren't, you didn't know where you were. Um, The smell of the explosive and maybe other body parts of some sort. Mm -hmm. Um, You feel the rush of terror, of shock, You stop breathing because that's sometimes what people will do when they're in shock. They can barely breathe. Mm. You are stunned. You're absolutely stunned. Your whole reality has collapsed. You don't know what's real and what isn't. You don't know what's true and what, what isn't. You don't know what's going on. There's a sense of bewilderment, of confusion, and of terror. Mm -hmm. Uh, And physical pain may also be a part of that. So if, for example, you're walking down the street, here's the impact of trauma. You're walking down the street 10 years later and you hear a car backfire. All the feelings, the visual, the hearing, the smells, the feeling in the body, the stopping, the breathing, the terror, the fear, the stunned, all impacts you all at one time. Those all rush to your consciousness at one time. Like a flood. Like a flood. It's like being buried by an avalanche. Like a non-selective cascade. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's no filters here. No filters. So with trauma memory, you have no filters. Thus, in therapy, when you're telling the story of what happened to you, detail by detail by detail, and you're slowing everything down to tell that story of what happened, you're allowing all the emotion to surface and come up again. And 
somebody's there with you. You know, another big factor of trauma is that you really feel it all alone. So, you know, even if people are around you. So now in telling the story, you're connecting with another human being. And the thing that is so incredible, that's so beautiful to see, whether you're working with an individual in therapy or you're working with a couple, is the power of connection to heal. That's what you're seeing. So what that means is that an individual telling me about a trauma, if I'm their therapist, is going to get some healing just from the fact that they're telling the story and they feel witnessed and listened to and empathized with. And that in itself begins that, that recreation of that individual. Mm, that's into, like the birthplace of... Uh, that's where it uh, begins. That's right. doesn't matter what kind of therapy is being practiced in individual in terms of that person feeling as long as they feel a deep connection with the therapist during their telling of their story and the impact of it on them, there's healing that's going to take place. Well, working with a couple is very similar Except what you have with a couple, and this is the deeper work that takes place in couples therapy that a lot of people miss when they describe what Gottman couples therapy is. They miss the deeper part. They think it's just skill training. Well, it's not. It's much more than that. So when you go with a couple into deeper feelings where one can really listen to the other, because the speaker is telling their feelings in a way that doesn't sabotage their getting listened to. For example, with criticism and blame. Instead, they're describing their deeper experience of what they went through during a bad interaction with the partner, for example. And the other person is really able to hear it and listen and empathize with it. Wow, there it is. There's the connection between the two partners that's recreating the relationship, you see. The witnessing, the understanding, the mirroring, the empathizing. That's exactly right. I see you in me in sort of some way. That's exactly right, yes. So that happens in both directions, of course, right? Ideally. Yeah, And also, um, just even in working on conflict management here and now, you know, you've got a problem and you want to solve it. So when they change the way they speak to one another, and then they take the time to really explore the depth of what's beneath one person's position on an issue compared to the other person's position on an issue, the depth of understanding, again, of that individual creates, oh, a little more compassion. Now I get it. Now I get it. And there again, you see the healing and the ease with which the couple can now build towards compromise because the understanding is in place as a foundation for the compromise. Mm, so a lot of the, like, if I'm understanding this correctly, a lot of the deeper connection and healing within a couple comes from 
in some way, like the acknowledgement, understanding, and permission for them to have their own world and their own experience individually, but that to be seen and witnessed. Right. And what we're also giving couples are, uh, for example, uh, the Dream Within Conflict Intervention, which has each person having a turn being a speaker while the other person listens, and then they trade roles. And when uh, one of the partners is a listener, we give that listener a specific set of questions to ask the speaker that really draws the speaker out, draws out where that speaker is really living regarding that issue. So shall I give you an example? Yeah, that'd be amazing. I think everyone listening would be like, please, please, please. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. So let's say that a couple has a, a big difference in how they want to discipline their children. And one of them really believes in uh, spanking, let's say. Uh, And the other does not and wants to forbid any kind of corporal punishment like that. Okay, so let's say that one person um, uh, who is speaking, let's say the speaker is the person who really believes in spanking. Okay, so let's say it's it's the husband in a relationship and the listener then asks the following questions things like this do you have any beliefs values or ethics that are part of your position on this issue and the speaker might say well yeah I believe that kids should get very firm limits Mm -hmm. and they should know the consequences of bad behavior and spanking not abuse but spanking is gonna give them the idea that no it's not gonna work for them to do this behavior and my belief is that you should have strong consequences okay and then the listener will ask the next question so the listener isn't bringing up their own position on this they don't get to share opinions yet not yet that's got to be a hard part for couples first trying this can can be but actually couples get so uh, curious about where their partners it works better so the second question is huge which is do you have any background or childhood history that relates to your position on this issue okay so let's say the fellow uh, who's answering the question says well actually um, you know my father died when I was really young And my mom was totally overwhelmed with four kids. And so I ran wild and I did whatever I cared to do. I did everything I wanted to do. There were no limits set, no curfews, no nothing, no rules. And I ended up at 14 really getting in trouble because I got, you know, I got in with these kids who were shoplifting and then they didn't want to shoplift. They actually wanted to rob right? And they ended up robbing and one of them had a gun and I didn't, but I ended up getting caught and having to go to juvie for two years. And it was the most horrendous, horrible experience of my life. And I want to make sure that 
my kid never gets in trouble like that because my kid has already learned the limits early. You see? Now we're getting to the juicy. Now we're getting to the juicy stuff. And then, you know, more questions follow. What are your feelings about this? What makes this so important to you? Is there some underlying goal or purpose in this for you? What's your ideal dream here in terms of your position on this issue? And underlying purpose or goal might be, I don't want my kid to repeat the same mistakes I did. Yeah, the intention is positive. Yes. I want to leave a legacy. My purpose, there's nothing more in purpose and nothing more important in terms of my purpose for living than being a good dad. Yeah. You see. All right. Now let's flip it to the other side. Yeah. Here's the other side. So uh, let's say the wife is saying, I never want to see corporal punishment used on my kid. Well, um, coming down to her background in history, she gets asked the same questions. Background in history, well, my dad was a drunk. And when my dad was mad, man, look out. So he'd pull out his belt. He'd pull out the one with the heavy metal buckle, and we'd get it. And I would go to school with welts. I would go to school with lacerations. Nobody noticed. Nobody stopped it, et cetera, et cetera. I never want to do that to my child. Mm. So with stories like that, that this uh, intervention brings out, the couple is learning how to talk to each other about their positions that are very different mm-hmm. on an important issue but in a way that builds compassion, builds understanding, and builds a knowledge of what enduring vulnerabilities does my partner still carry inside them that I should be aware of and be sensitive to. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like you're experiencing both of the experiences that go behind the the importance and the principles of what they're fighting for. Precisely. Which then I would imagine leads to a lot more willingness to compromise just because yes. now all of a sudden we have this bridge where we both yeah. have levels of protection. That's right. Wow. Yeah. So in the, in the context of couples working through things like affairs, I mean, I get that question all the time. I know that's a common experience for people in life, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, think mm-hmm. I mean, I've certainly had experience with infidelity when I was younger. And mm-hmm. so what is, when we're like translating the trauma work and then this ability to really bring forth a person's experience and understanding, because of course people ask all the time questions like, should I even bother to work it out? you know? Right. And, um, you know, I even hear in a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of people saying like the first thing to do is to not villainize the cheater. And of course, then that makes angry the other person who feels very, um, compromised. So yeah, interested to just hear your thoughts on some of that and, and what is the best sort of steps a couple can take in that repair? Okay. So that's a wonderful question. Uh, and we've actually, done some research on um, what creates affairs and how to reverse that. So first of all, uh, it's a different model of treatment. Um, And you really do need therapy 
um, it's almost impossible to do this without a therapist in the room to help create safety because the emotions are so intense. So there are several parts to the treatment, and let me describe uh, fundamental parts of it. One is you have to realize, both people need to realize that the individual who has been betrayed is going to be suffering from our old friend, post-traumatic stress disorder. And here's why. Because um, the betrayal of their partner has turned their world upside down. And typically, they have found out in a way that shock the heck out of them again. It feels like an explosion in their world because who they thought their partner was is not somebody totally different all the dreams they had for the future have collapsed all the all the fear that comes from the agony the pain of betrayal is front and center so that person really is suffering a terrible trauma in their world. It's not a loss of uh, physical life or a danger to physical life. What it is, is it's a loss of emotional life, physical life in the terms of sexuality, Mm -hmm. spiritual life, uh, family life, every which way life. It's like your life just all of a sudden gets completely shaken up into every, everything's unpredictable. That's right. It turns upside down and the results of it look exactly like PTSD. Hypervigilance. Now you're looking, right? You walk to the grocery store, you're looking for the bomb. So you walk to the computer, you're looking for the bomb in the emails or the texts. Even phones will probably give you anxiety, like all these ways of any unpredictability of partner behavior. That's right. Your partner's 10 minutes late Mm. because they got caught in traffic. You don't believe them. You think they were at a hotel with a mistress or, or mister. So, you know, all of, all of that hypervigilance is there. You're having nightmares you may have intrusive thoughts, images of uh, what your partner looked like with the other man or woman. Um, you're imagining it, and those pictures come into your head unbidden. You don't want them to be there. They're out of your control, and they come in, and your heart drops to the floor. Um, you may have big mood swings. So you may be numb some of the time and then feel this rage come over you out of nowhere or this crying fit that comes over you and so on, as well as the fear that's there all the time. So, you know, it, all of those things fit what post-traumatic stress disorder looks like. All right. So what do you do? You know, um, first of all, you cannot do therapy as a couple unless the partner who had the infidelity has totally broken it off with yeah. the partner. I hear that often where like a couple's working on it and then, you know, either secretly or non-secretly, there's still communication. And I'm like, 
Mm-mm. They're not fully there. They'll never, you know, you can't be fully committed to working something out when you're 15 to 37% of you is still engaged in something. That's, that's a horrible boundary for the partner who's been betrayed. Yes, that's exactly right. And it doesn't work. There's no way no trust can work. There's no trust. The betrayal is continuing. Ugh. And which, you know, which relationship is that betraying partner in? Are they in the committed one or the other one? Um, because they're straddling both. Well, that's not going to work. No, you've got to have both feet in that relationship that you're working on. So um, what we have is a model uh, that's called the attune, or sorry, the atone, attune, and attach model. Here's how it works. In the first part of therapy, and this may be as, you know, as few as three sessions and as many as, you know, six months of sessions, um, it, it's one-sided in that the person who's been betrayed is free to ask the other partner anything they want to about the affair anything they want to. And there has to be a commitment by both people to tell the truth and be utterly transparent. Also, um, defensiveness isn't going to work. So in that first part of the therapy, the person who did the betraying is not going to be saying, I did it because you weren't giving me sex. or I did it because you were criticizing me all the time. That's not going to work. So they have to own their part in that first piece, in the atonement phase. Also, um, so the person who's been betrayed asks questions. Those questions are answered honestly. We encourage the person who's been betrayed to not ask questions, however, here's the exception, to not ask questions about the actual sexual acts that the reason is because if the betraying partner describes the sex with the other person in detail it will create more pictures and more trauma and make the trauma worse for the person who's been betrayed but anything else can be asked things like did you meet him on that day did you buy them something? Did, were they in our house? Was that person uh, there with you at the beach? Did that person go on the work retreat with you? You know, things like that. Um, how did you first meet? Who set you up with that person? You know, etc. cetera. And um, also, the person who's been betrayed gets to express all the feelings they've had about the affair to the other person. Now, that doesn't mean that they can lambast that other person, you know, like stick daggers in them. No criticism, no contempt. But what they can do is describe themselves. I feel destroyed by this. I feel like my whole world has blown up. I feel so um, heart ripped out of me uh, 
that I can barely breathe from minute to minute. Feelings like that. And the therapist needs to be able to really support both individuals as they're going through that because it's really, really hard for the person who did the betraying to, to hear those feelings and not want to run screaming out of the room. So the, they, that's why it has to take place in therapy. Uh, and um, that person needs to feel not judged by the therapist. The therapist's job is not to sit in the pulpit and judge. The therapist needs to understand that there were circumstances of some sort that led up to this. And it's not just one's good and one's evil. It's not like that. What are the circumstances that often lead to that type of position? What happens oftentimes is that... um, it can begin with a pattern of people not knowing how to talk about problems they have, about conflicts. This is the typical thing we've yeah. seen, where they don't talk about conflicts. They bury the conflicts underground. And neither person really feels listened to. And resentment builds because their needs are not getting listened to. They can't talk about, hey, um, you know, I really needed you at my bedside when I had to go to the emergency room. Where were you? You know, I needed you. So they need um, they they needed to be able to talk about missed bids for connection. You know, when their partner wasn't there for them when they needed them, not feeling listened to, but in both directions, oftentimes. Um, not feeling like their partner's really interested in them. You know, this builds over time. Um, and sometimes really suffer, having suffered some, what we would call attachment injuries or emotional injuries in the past, um, during bad, regrettable incidents they had where, you know, they call each other bad names or they lose control and get completely flooded and say all the wrong stuff and then they never go back and repair it i would would imagine that sometimes even like relationships from before could even lead to you know like early trauma in the childhood things like that sometimes sure it can compound the impact of things that are happening here and now in this current relationship that's true So um, eventually what happens is the couple grows more and more distant and more and more lonely. Mm. And it's the loneliness that creates the vulnerability to an affair. The space for someone else to give them attention, say the thing their partner's not saying. You've got it. They smile at me, at least they care, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The other thing that a fabulous researcher named Carol Rusbald really figured out is that when things are not good in the relationship and, and, a partner starts making uh, negative comparisons of their committed partner with somebody else, uh, that's a sign that an affair could happen. Let me say, let me describe what that's like. Yeah. You already gave a great example, which is um, uh, 
they haven't been talking to each other and the husband goes uh, to Starbucks and gets a latte every morning and the barista gives him a beautiful smile. And boy, that smile felt really good. Here's the negative comparison. When was the last time my wife smiled at me like that? I haven't seen a smile like that in forever. I wonder if she would have a cup of coffee with me. There it is. You see, that's how it begins. So it's that negative comparing. Rather than going home and saying, honey, I'm worried. We haven't been connecting for a long time, and I miss your smile. It looks like you're not happy, and I'm not feeling very happy either. What should we do? So opening up a conversation like that is the antidote to that happening. It's turning towards, as you guys talk about it, research and... And like expressing, like I'm feeling disconnected from you, which I think is such a powerful, you know, relational audit that is so important because, you know, I've found at least historically for me and, and in the relational work that I do now is that there's so many unsaid things between partners. Mm-hmm. In the ether of their mm-hmm. culture, of their relationship, that mm-hmm. are driving the car, really. Yes. The and then they wonder when there's affairs or they break up or someone walks out or, or, or whatever happens, because that doesn't just happen, of course, right. it builds up over time. That's right. So following this atonement phase yeah. in the therapy, when uh, the betrayed partner feels like, okay, most of their questions have been answered and they, re- they do feel listened to in terms of those terrible feelings, then you can move on to what's called attunement. And in the attunement phase, here's where they create marriage number two, marriage number two, with the same partner. Marriage number one has crashed and burned. It's gone. They've got to create marriage number two. So how do they do that? Well, again, they revisit some of these important moments in the past that caused lasting emotional hurt. And they process those and understand those better and what went wrong in the communication so they can put them behind them. And they build new tools for how to process conflict in a healthy way, how to deepen their friendship, how to really get to know where the other person is truly living here and now inside themselves. Um, They work on creating much more appreciation and much more fondness and admiration and expressing that to one another. And they're really rebuilding a different kind of marriage. And then finally, in the last phase, which we call attachment, what they do here, and, and sometimes this may happen earlier, but a lot of times it doesn't, they may work on resuming their sexual relationship now where there's more emotional safety. you got to have that emotional safety, uh, especially for women, uh, to be sexually open again. And there can be a little backslide as they become more sexual with, uh-oh, it's going to happen again. I'm letting myself be vulnerable. I'm getting too close. I better back up, and so on. So that's, you know, that's a little tricky, and um, yet it's also a beautiful stage of rebuilding the relationship. And they're also working on recommitting to each other and what commitment is going to look like yeah. in that attachment phase while continuing to um, really 
firm up and solidify the new patterns of connecting with one another that they've begun to establish. Yeah, I would imagine that the old versions of self that created that relationship container that led to infidelity, it has, every old pattern has to fall away. Right. Every old pattern well, has to fall away. The bad patterns. Yeah. <laughs> Not every pattern, Not the but the ones that didn't work, yes. Well, and in that, where you said that when they start to open up sexually again and they're opening, feeling more vulnerable, and they're, because mm-hmm. uh, that's really the, the surrender begins again. Right. You know, right. there's the intellectual, emotional surrender, but that's a real true surrender. True. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering in that case, when there is the recoil that can happen, is that the, the sort of PTSD framework that's coming? Yep. Yep. That's right. So the PTSD is getting triggered again. Yep. Huh. Okay. So that is about talking about it, communicating about what's going on for them if they're wanting to recoil. Mm-hmm. What they need. Mm-hmm. What that's right. Framework. Pardon? What a beautiful framework. Yeah, yeah. And it really does seem to work. We've, we've done it, um, our, and our therapists trained in our methods have used this method um, for a number of years now, and it's, it appears to be very successful. I would imagine with any two people who are actually committed to the truth and the dissolution of the other relationship that they were in, this would have a very high success rate. It would just be that core piece of, am I going to commit to being really actually honest? And I'm actually committed to being in this relationship and actually only this one. But mm-hmm. without those two ingredients, I mean, really, you can't have any relationship. Right. That's right. That's right. So you guys have gotten like, I mean, your research is about what makes the men, what makes them thrive. And I love, and I know like in your work on um, conflict and, and how the soft startup, like how you start a conversation is how it inevitably ends. And I, I just think it was such a natural, beautiful progression because you got, you and John and I think a couple friends, right? You wrote, you just wrote a book on how do we start relationships or even if we're in a relationship, how do we reboot it in a way that we're having the crucial conversations that matter. So for the people that listening, um, they just wrote a book called Eight Dates. And it is like essential conversations that you all couples need to have. So like what a beautiful transition. And I was thinking like they need to do stuff on the beginning of the relationship because you guys are so good at all the stuff in between and, and the endings. So mm-hmm. how did you get about this? <laughs> well, what we realized um, is that, you know, especially today, Mark, you know, couples are coming together in all kinds of interesting ways. You know, we've got Tinder out there. We've got uh, Bumble. You know, we've got uh, people hooking up all over the place. And when they're actually going on dates, if they're actually going on dates, uh, they may be very awkward. They don't know what to talk about. And people in particular um, don't know how to flag who is a, a good partner for them and who may not be uh, as well as who is this individual I've been with for 20 years but we really haven't had any deep conversations and can we rekindle our curiosity about each other mm-hmm. so in all of our research we've gotten to know you know over 3,000 couples pretty well um, that's a few that's a few and so what we've realized are the important things that couples really need to talk about uh, and be able to talk about, even if they disagree, um, that 
uh, really lead to more successful relationships. So we did a survey, actually, it was really fun. We did a survey with 300 couples and we created 12 dates um, that we thought fit what couples really do tend to argue the most about or struggle the most, you know, when they're in a committed relationship. Four of those dates turned out to be total duds. So we were checking with the couples who were going out on these dates saying, hey, was this fun? Did you learn anything new? Was it interesting? Did you really love talking about that? And four of them were like, they're horrible. So out they went. And the other eight we kept uh, as the couples really enjoyed them and thought, that they learned a lot about their partner, even when they'd been together for decades, that they didn't realize was true for their partner. As well as, I think there were about 39% of the couples who were brand new, you know, maybe on oh, wow, yeah, so beginning, four. Right. yeah, brand new couples, and talking about these big topics like trust and commitment, like sex, like family, uh, dreams, adventure, fun, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, we did not, we didn't design the dates. They're highly designed, you know, with things to think about before you go on the date and activities you could do during the date and what particular questions to discuss with each other. We didn't do this uh, in to set up conflictual discussions. Yeah. We did these, we designed the questions to just learn more about each other. So, for example, um, the subject of sex and intimacy is always a fun one for couples to talk about. But, you know, what do you, what do you really like? You know, who should initiate? Not, I mean, those are important. But the more important questions were things like, so how did you learn about sex growing up? And what are your feelings about sex as a part of your life now? And, um, you know, what, what history do you have with sex in other relationships? Was it painful? Was it good? Was it, you know, do you have some negative experience in there and so on? So it's really sharing a little bit more information about some of that background as well as talking about some of your preferences as much as you're comfortable talking about it. Um, same thing with a chapter on family. So, you know, a big issue for, especially for young couples now who are meeting is, do you want to have kids? Yeah. And, you know, given the world as it is, I mean, some people do and some people definitely don't. And so... How do you define family for yourself? That's one of the questions in that chapter. Because yeah. family can mean my chosen set of friends. Or it can mean my community. You know, if you're gay and lesbian, well, my family, you know, that community of gay or lesbian people around me is so incredible. I'm so close to them. They are my family. Yeah. Um, transgender too, you know, not just cisgender. So um, what does family mean to you? How important is family? What does family look like to you? And if you want to have kids, why? You know, how do you feel about having kids? So 
you know, these are questions that really open up the other person's world at a deeper level uh, to understand what's really important to them. Really continuing to create that foundational work, like you talked about in the processing of trauma, this mm-hmm. sort of baseline of curiosity and and really wanting to get to under, I know in the sound relationship house that you guys talk about, um, I'll make sure that everything's linked out by the way mm-hmm. uh, for people, but that just like being able to understand someone else's world. Right. When you know you're in conflict about things like family or um, I know money is the other one that, you know, that seems to be a big one for people. Well, the thing with money, it's interesting, Mark, because, you know, with kids, there's no compromise if one person wants children and the other doesn't, right? No, you can't have half a kid. But um, with money, people can have big disagreements and still have a great relationship. They just have to understand where the other person's coming from. You know, so again, another example um, where two people are talking about money and one of the questions is, So what's your background around money? How were you raised regarding the value of money? Well, one person may say we grew up in terrible poverty. We were evicted from apartment after apartment. And so I want to make a lot of money and I want to make sure we got money in the bank. So that never happens to my family. No more evictions. Well, the other person may say, well, I understand that, but my parents had good jobs. They made money. My parents saved and saved and saved for their retirement, and then my dad dropped dead at 40. So I don't want to just save money. I want to use the money to have really great experiences here and now. Hear it? There's the conflict. But with understanding where the other person is coming from, where they live inside themselves, then it's easier to build towards, okay, that's interesting. We're very different, but I bet we can work it out through compromise. So you get to understand each other's world again. And in the, when you wrote this book and you talked about how you have people who are in new relationships, who are in the sort of test group, people Mm -hmm. who are in relationships for some time too. Mm -hmm. So you got a little bit of a picture of everything. And, And what did you find the results that you got from, you know, kicking out those four dates of the twelve? And then keeping these eight, what have been the results that you've seen from these sort of essential conversations and that you teach people how to have them, which is great. Right. Um, Well, what we've seen uh, is that people, first of all, really enjoyed the dates. Secondly, um, overall, people learned much more and felt closer to their partners, whether they were new or in lasting relationships, they felt a lot closer uh, after doing the dates than they had before um, and had more understanding of one another. Things just felt more intimate. Which is so beautiful for yeah. like a relationship, especially not only new, but for one that's been together for a while and sure. rebirth that like, you know, because I think in some way we like start dating someone, we've been together two, three years, and then we're like, I already know how they're going to finish their sentences. Like there's <laughs> nothing new going on. But of course, we know we are all, always evolving and changing. Somehow we don't take the same level of curiosity often uh, over long term. We sort of take that for granted. But there's right. always a new person being birthed. 
That's right. That's right. Every single day. That's right. In fact, you know, there was, oh God, this amazing study uh, done at UCLA at the Sloan Center that um, took two career couples and looked at how much time did they actually spend together in private conversation. Yeah. 35 minutes a week. 35 minutes? A week. And what they were talking about was, did you call the plumber? So nothing really, like no curiosity, no connection, no true connection. Right. They were really tired and they just had a list, a to-do list. And that happened week after week after week. Yeah. Yeah. So you lose touch with each other. You have to make an intentional choice to stay close by making time, making connection a priority together. Yeah. And being able to do that. I love that you created this book so that people don't have, you know, cause you know, I often get asked like, what are questions that you can ask when you start dating someone? Like, well, ask what they're looking for. So many people actually even avoid that question. And then they wonder why they're in a relationship with someone who doesn't want what they want <laughs> later. Right. <laughs> you know, like, but what a great filtration process than uh, none other than to actually have the conversations that you actually are essential to know in order to build a very constructive, beautiful, connective relationship. Yep. What a concept. And like, the human system needs that. That's, you know, it's so beneficial to our health. You know, right. work that you guys do. I would love to see, you know, the epidemiology work of how the effect of your work has on an intervention in terms of, um, is there any, you know, in terms of like disease and inflammation and all those types of things. Uh, well, we haven't done intervention research, but we do know a lot. You know, we know, for example, from other research that people who are men who are in successful relationships live an average of eight years longer. Wow. Yes. They make more money. They and men and women tend to make more money. L- women live an average of four years longer. Um, their children do much better. Their children have higher success rates in school, in jobs, and in relationship. Um, physical health for both men and women is much stronger, much better when they're in healthy relationships. Um, you know, there's just a ton of data. Kids do better in their peer relationships as well when they're in a family, a two-parent family that have uh, a good, healthy relationship. So, you know, there's there's a lot of good research out there that shows, yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's worth doing this work. And thank you so much to you and, and your partner, your husband, for creating this for and all the work that you did to lead up to that work. Because, you know, as I said at the beginning, it's also essential and we're all people just trying to figure it out <laughs> and we're still trying to figure it out right. it's yeah. such a beautiful thing how much your work has evolved and uh, i know that this book has been crushing it too it's been flying off the shelf well digital shelves i guess nowadays um so where can people find you because i think and I, first actually i want to say thank you so much for your time today i'm eternally <laughs> grateful um and and where can people find you 
Well, Mark, first of all, let me say thank you, too. It's been a real pleasure and a really, really fun conversation with you and a meaningful one. So I appreciate the connection with you that you allowed here. Um, and people can find more about us and about the book online at www.gottman.com, G-O-T-T-M-A-N. And the book is everywhere. It's, in, it's on bookshelves, and it's at Amazon. It's wherever you look. Yeah. And for you guys have a great Instagram, too. For the people who don't know, your Instagram, I'll link that out to Gottman Institute. It is phenomenal, funny. You guys have little... Um, a lot of little caricatures and like little summaries of studies. I think it's great. Everybody needs to invest in themselves in terms of relational awareness. That is the greatest investment that will translate to every area of their life. And I think you've certainly convinced us. And thank you for also walking people through how to manage infidelity. That is such a challenging thing for people to do. Mm -hmm. Um, All the resources that we've discussed today will be linked. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Mark. Bye-bye.